Welcome to Technotopia, a podcast about a better future. I'm John Biggs. And I'm Stefani Tien. And today we're talking to Peter Singer, a consultant and senior fellow at New America. This is Technotopia. So this is a very interesting one, Stefan. Uh, this this guy knows military, right? He knows military. He knows writing. He knows research. He knows quite a lot of things. Mm-hmm. So we've been talking to artists for the past few episodes, uh, but Peter seems to be the uh, the uh, he's not he's not the anti-artist, but he's a, he's a very technical fo- uh, person. So it's going to be really interesting to hear what he has to say about a better future for all of us, I guess. A hardcore look at things. Essentially. <laughs> Who's coming up uh, in the next couple of weeks? Do we have anybody all lined up? Ah, uh, there we have quite a few people, but you know, it's best if you listen to the podcast and check out the tweets, and you'll always know who's coming next. All right, that's very very cool. So we're gonna have uh, Peter Singer on next, senior fellow at New America, and a consultant for the military. So what do the lasers say? They say pew pew pew. Is that what the kids say that the lasers say? John, you are so out of. I am out of touch. All right, here's Peter Singer. So we are here with Peter Singer, senior fellow at New America and a consultant and author. Uh, Your expertise is future war, cybersecurity, and all that other good stuff, right, Peter? (laughs) Is it good stuff or bad stuff? (laughs) I don't know. You tell us. This is a podcast about the future. This is a podcast about uh, the fact that we're not going to end up in a dystopian hellhole. Um, so maybe you can tell us if that's true or not. <laughs> I, I certainly hope it is. Um, I guess you've, you know, the, the challenge of this, and I was actually having this conversation, um, earlier with, uh, some, it's interesting in the last couple of days, I've had conversations around this with two very different groups that work in the same space. Mm-hmm. One is the U S military and the other is the red cross. Um, they're, they're both weirdly enough using my book, uh, ghost fleet as a, as a vision for issues in the future of war and technology. And we were talking about, you know, how do we wrestle with the future and my own kind of operating theory of, of how I do it. And, you know, I don't think there's, um, any one definable future in front of us and no one can do that kind of prediction with confidence, but I think we can identify the key trends that will likely shape those future potential worlds that mm-hmm. lie ahead of us. So think of a metaphor of a, of a tea kettle on a stove, you know, with all our advanced science today, we can't predict where a single molecule of water will be next in that tea kettle. Just can't do it. You know, we can send a robot to Mars, but we can't do that. <laughs> but if you're looking at that system, you would say, well, if I want to, you know, predict the future, um, is the stove on or not knowing that, you know, if enough heat is applied, that likely that water molecule, again, you don't know when you don't know where is going to turn to steam. So, you know, that's an important trend to pay attention to, but again, it doesn't mean that that necessarily will happen. You know, some, something else here, your kid might come along and knock that tea kettle. But the point is, you know, these trends are important to pay attention to. Mm-hmm. Well, that's interesting. So tell us about ghost fleet. Sure. So, uh, ghost fleet is a, um, mashup of fiction and nonfiction. It's a novel, uh, in the style of like a Tom Clancy or Michael Crichton techno thriller. Uh, and yet every 
technology, every trend, even some of the things that the characters say in it are pulled from the real world. So it's a novel, but with over 400 endnotes to document how everything in it is real. The story, um, the title of it says it all, it's a novel of the next world war. So it's set in the near future and explores what would happen if there was a conflict between the great powers of the 21st century, if there was a war between, uh, not to give the plot away too much, but between the U.S., Russia, and China. Um, now, what's been fun about it is uh, because of this mashup, you know, it's got this strange um, set of fans. As, as you know, I said before, mm -hmm. everything from the Red Cross to the U.S. military, but also, you know, the, the blurbers of it range from um, the head of the U.S. Navy to the creators of HBO's Game of Thrones TV okay. series. <laughs> That's nice. very, very complex, I'd say. It, it, it's been fun. It's been a wild ride. And I think, it, again, it, you know, it reflects this idea of having a foot in both worlds that it's, you know, it's designed to be fast paced, interesting. Um, the structure of it is rather than following one character, you follow multiple characters. So a lot like, a, you know, the Clancy book would be Red Storm Rising or um, the style of a World War Z or um, uh, who's whose author is another big fan of it. He said some really kind words about it to, like I mentioned, Game of Thrones. So, you know, kind of multiple characters, multiple places they um don't always meet uh but that allows you again to the purposes of this podcast it allows you to explore this future world this this potential future war from lots of different vantage points it allows you to you know treat it almost as a character itself so to be a to be a bit of a debbie downer and again this seems since you since you do work with the military and a few other uh, a few other folks entertainment as well um War, uh, World War One, World War Two, uh, and the Cold War, basically helped define technological progress over the past century. Do we need another war? Uh, does another war have to happen for uh, another sea change in in technology? Presumably, World War Two sort of spurred the the impetus towards computers. Um, Cold War spurred the impetus towards electronic communication and encryption. Do we need another war to to pop us out the other end of uh, for for the better? I guess. Um, I don't know if I would phrase it. Do we need? <laughs> um, I I think you can see in history. You know, it's funny. This is about the future, but I, I will constantly pull back in history. And so I think you see in history, there's always been that interplay between war and technology, and then you get a little bit of a kind of a cause and effect story, um, and that. You know, goes back uh, really to the you know, the very first technologies. They they've always um, had say a dual use. Mm -hmm. So the the first stone was picked up and was either used to ahead or build something, build you know a a, a fire. Um, or a tool. Mm -hmm. And that that duality has continued. And, you know, all the technologies that you mentioned, the computer, um, we now see it with drones and robotics, uh, you name it. Um, now, then you get to the, the chicken or egg story. Uh, so, you know, you gave some powerful examples of 
how, uh, say, you know, for example, the computing re revolution and um, both the story of cryptography to uh, the role in the Cold War. Um, but, you know, again, it's a little bit more complex than that. Mm -hmm. So even with computers, if you, you know, the, the myth of the Internet is that it was created, you know, for some kind of super secret uh, communication in the event of a nuclear war. If you go back to the history, yes, it was funded by the U.S. military, but it was actually designed to allow U.S. military funded scientists to share something that back then was really scarce, and that was computing resources, um, computing time. So it was basically allowed, it was designed to allow them to um, conduct research better. Uh, so, you know, that's, that's always been there. Or, you know, if you look at the steam engine, um, its origin really isn't, you know, it doesn't take a, a war for it to be created. Um, you could argue later on, maybe it helps make wars more likely and all that. But, you know, again, I wouldn't phrase it in, in need. I just say there's always been that interplay. And that again is a lesson, you know, when people are looking to the future, um, if you think about like debates right now around um, robotics and the, and the killer robot debate, which is, you know, again, it's both uh, real. Um, we see groups everywhere from the United Nations to U.S. military task forces to this, you know, set of some 2000 scientists that range from Stephen Hawking to um, Elon Musk, all, all saying, you know, we got to do something about killer robots. They're inspired by science fiction. You know, they're, they're worried about this. They're trying to head this future off. But again, um, all of uh, the work that's going on in artificial intelligence and robotics right now isn't happening solely because we're in some war. Um, so again, you know, and, and the technology itself is, you know, as I would argue, it's, it's dual use, the, the same technology that's um, being used to, uh, for example, allow Watson to win at Jeopardy, Watson, the IBM AI program, which has now been, you know, moved into fields that range from medicine. That was one of the, it, it originally was supposed to help doctors diagnose um, more effectively and save patient lives. Uh, to travel agents to, oh, by the way, Watson has also now already competed for a Pentagon contract. So, you know, it's always been that way, and I think it will remain that way in the future. Okay. So what will the world look like in 10 years? <laughs> um, I think, you know, the world will uh, look like um, there will be some parts that will not fundamentally change at all, and those are the parts that um, link to, uh, you know, this combination of um, enduring human nature. Uh, so, you know, we'll have crime, um, we'll have love, we'll have, you know, all the positive and negative things. Um, I don't think we're going to fundamentally change human nature in that period. I also, 10 years out, um, we much of what's there... Uh, right now will be there in the future because of simply put kind of the legacy effect of investments. And that's true whether, you know, you're looking at everything from housing to transportation to, to whatnot, you know, look like, well, most of the houses that will be there 10 years from now are the ones that have already been built now. Same for apartments and um, the things that will fill them, some of them will be shiny and new and different, and a lot of them will be the things we we already own today. Mm -hmm. um, if we're looking for what's different, I would argue look at what already exists today, maybe not 
um, out in the marketplace, but already in the lab in you know prototypes form. If we're looking ten years out, it's unlikely that you're going to see lots of things that are truly vaporware right now. Mm-hmm. It, it's things that you know someone is already working on. Um, combination of things that are doing really well right now, uh, but are considered cutting edge or unique, will be proliferated. And again, there's you can have the kind of war story of that, and you can have the the civilian life story for it. So, you know, a, a great illustration of this would be mobile phones, where you know if we go ten years back, they're they're not as um, widespread, uh, but you you could have said, yeah, this thing um, it it's going to become more widespread as it becomes more popular, as it becomes cheaper, etc. The same thing, um, the discussion of drones, where drones, you know, were once science fiction, then they're real, then they're considered cutting edge to now they're proliferating, again, for military and civilian purposes. So I think those are some of the kind of, you know, the lessons that you might say of if you're trying to put your finger on the future. Um, it's this combination of, you know, what's already there, what's something that's um, a high investment that's hard to replace, What's something that's um, already being worked on and what's something that's popular right now, uh, but not in widespread form, but that you can say kind of, you know, uh, what's going to proliferate. A different way of saying is, you know, in these discussions of the future, it's the combination of um, evolution and revolution. It's evolution. What's what's doing well today that's likely to thrive uh, and revolution. What are those new things that may change the, the rules of the game? Okay. So what do you think, uh, what, what have you seen um, that are changing the rules in terms of technology that's happening right now? So uh, again, you know, there's, there's things that I'm partial to, but I come out of the, this combination of, you know, yeah, I have a novel, but also I come out of the research world. And so I was actually part of a, an effort a couple of years back that tried to come out this in sort of a methodologically sound manner. I hate to get wonky on you, but <laughs> basically we approached it as a research project where um, we interviewed uh, well over 60 different um, experts in in who could help you answer the, the the question that you asked. And so those people had to be diverse. So you're getting, you know, the wisdom of the crowd, but you're getting the wisdom of from lots of different perspectives. And so the experts ranged from scientists at, um, you know, places like DARPA uh, and universities to military folks to uh, people who worked at companies like, you know, Google and Facebook to futurists, you name it. And so the sum total of that 60, essentially what we asked them, you see right now is akin to the computer in 1980. Mm-hmm. Or akin to, you know, if you put a military side on it, the Predator drone in 2001. So it's real. It's not, you know, totally imaginary. Um, we're not totally in the sci-fi world. But it's something that hasn't yet changed the world, but you think it will in a very big way. And um, so those 60 people gave lots of different answers. But they essentially um, fell along a couple of key lines. And you can organize them. Uh, and, you know, if we were thinking about it on the hardware side, it was robotics and particularly robotics as they proliferate, as they become smaller, um, as we stop thinking about them as robots, 
but as they just do more and more things and, and uh, you know, the kind of parallel to what happened with the computer where you and I are talking on a computer, but as mm -hmm. I look around the room, there's all sorts of other computers that surround me right now. Like the thermostat is a computer, the, the clock is a computer, et cetera. So that's on the hardware side. On the um, software side, it was basically, uh, you know, crossing a little bit with the hardware, but it's artificial intelligence and um, the internet of things. Uh, those they saw as kind of key key changes. Um, on the human side, it was human performance modification technologies, um, and all that that entails. You know, so basically putting technology not just on top of the body but inside the body, and and particularly chemical technology. So again, if you're saying, well, you know, what what will that look like? look at you know what are olympic athletes doing what are special operations on the military side doing um what are college kids doing uh all these different performance modifiers as they become more and more commonplace and more and more advanced uh another key shift is um at least within the military world but again there's some civilian side is energy and energy forms so in the military uh it's basically um lasers <laughs> there's no other way to put it okay. uh, it's basically you know um we've weapons have always been some kind of physical force um your fist or you know a bullet thrown out by the force of a chemical explosion now we're seeing energy waves as the weapon itself uh, and again you know it seems like sci-fi star wars but uh the u.s navy has already deployed a warship to the persian gulf that's armed with an energy weapon um, and then uh, the final is not in, in the what, but the how, and that's um, direct digital manufacturing or what's commonly known as 3D printing. Mm -hmm. And basically it's the idea that um, it's, not, it's not about what you make, it's who can make it and where they can make it. So think of it, um, if, again, if we're making a, a, a history parallel, it's um, Samuel Colt. So people go, oh, Samuel Colt matters to the story of war because he's his six-shooter, right? He matters more to the story of war because of, you know, essentially he's the guy that helps uh, with interchangeable parts and the assembly line. And it basically rewrites the story of who makes what in war before Samuel Colt governments and militaries used to make most of their own weapons that was the idea of an arsenal an arsenal mm -hmm. was this place that you know it was like a factory where the military made its own gear after colt you know it, it they can't do it anymore it's private companies that make the weapons of war but of course you know the story of 3d printing is not just or it's playing out and you know everything from um, stories of uh, manufacturing and what can you know individuals and small businesses do to um, insourcing and, and global trade where 3D printing, uh, one of the things we explore in Ghost Fleet is, you know, what does it mean um, for our reliance on um, spare parts from China? Mm -hmm. uh, could you actually make them cheaper here? And that's not a, a could you, that's one of the big changes that may be playing out right now. Interesting. So in that case, if we have the proliferation of advanced technologies in every sector, and lasers, and, and a, lasers everybody <laughs> loves lasers, um, how can we ensure there will be no dystopia? And more specifically, as an international community, because we're bringing up 
concepts of military and less civilian, at least in this podcast, at least. So that begs the question, will we need intervention from the UN? For, for example, an accord very, very similar to the climate change accord, an accord based on the banning of artificial intelligence for the use of war, for example. I think you're going to have to see um, weigh in from multiple different levels, but again, informed by history, we're going to have to be fairly um, a mix of being modest and realist. So what I mean by that is um, it's, you know, if you're, let's use your example of artificial intelligence. Um, on one hand, we, we have a fundamental challenge right now, and this is paralleled in all sorts of other uh, spaces, whether it's you know biochemistry and genomics to robotics, whatever, where essentially it's um, the speed at which the technology is developing and, and advancing is exponential, and the speed at which the policy and law and ethics is developing is glacial. And so the distance between the two grows wider and wider. Um, and so that uh, that's our challenge. Um, the related challenge to it and what's different about a lot is, um, say, compared to uh, like the atomic bomb, the barriers to entry are so incredibly low um, that is part of their story is how almost anyone anywhere can not just develop or make them, but use them. You know, that's the story of what's playing out in drones to what's playing out and work on AI to genomics, you name it, is that it's not like, you know, back in 1942 where I say, oh, I want to do something on the atomic bomb and we're going to have to, you know, bring together tens of thousands of people and tens of billions of spending that only one nation at the time could pull off. Mm -hmm. um, so that also, again, means you're going to have to have uh, involvement from all of these different sectors. So you, know, you mentioned the United Nations. It's important for them to be weighing in. But oh, by the way, on a discussion of artificial intelligence, it could prove to be irrelevant if it also doesn't involve the companies that are making that technology and making it not just merely for war. So, you know, it's not just a story about defense contractors. It's the companies that are making it for, you know, everything from um, transportation to financial trading. Um, again, as I mentioned, all the different ways where we're seeing AI moved over. Um, so it's going to, you know, simply put, it's, it's a little bit parallel to these, these other technologies that have happened previously. Over time, we're going to have to create the laws, the norm, the ethics. A lot of them are going to be applying the old laws and ethics over. So, you know, as an example, um, some people say, oh, well, you know, look at all this cyber war stuff. Do we need a new Geneva Conventions for cyber conflict? Is that the only way to protect ourselves? And, you know, that's an argument to be had. But one of the things is to, is to realize, hey, the values of the old Geneva Conventions, they've not become antiquated. They actually, um, uh, there's a lot of good things in them as they apply over to cyber. You know, lessons like uh, there's a difference between warrior and civilian and you're not supposed to attack civilian. Whether you're doing it with a, a, a bullet or a bite, that seems a good value to have. Or um, the idea 
that uh, if, if you are engaged in a war, um, you're not supposed to do things that uh, are um, cruel. And um, even if you're carrying out violence, it's not supposed to be something that, you know, you, you torture people or you use more violence than is necessary. Um, again, that seems a pretty good value to have whatever kind of weapon talking about, whether it's, you know, a stone or a drone or, you know, an AI or whatever. Um, so some of it is carrying over and being applied. And then we're going to have to figure out where are these gaps, where we have to interpret it in new way, new laws. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, it's, it's, it's not just a simple matter um, of uh, the way it's framed sometimes. You know, we just need to write a letter and stop. We need to prevent it. it it's going to be a more complex story. Are you are you worried about the future? Sorry, I wanted to I wanted to the circle back on on one of those things that sure. um is the the word dystopia right mm -hmm. um so we also have to remember that there are facets of of our world today that um people in the past you know great science fiction writers and the like have described as utopian mm -hmm. or dystopian. <laughs> And we probably wouldn't feel that we're living in either a sure. utopia or a dystopia right now, um, or at least most of us, unless you know you're sitting in you know Hawaii or the mm -hmm. other end, you know Syria right now. Um, so you know, and you can think about that and everything from um, the amount of surveillance uh, that that goes on around us, mm -hmm. and everything from you know the cameras that are there to you know, NSA metadata tracking, I mean, Orwell would be, you know, blown away by it. Um, and yet, uh, we go about our daily lives, um, to, you know, the other end of, you know, I think about like Jules Verne's writing about, you know, a world where they would have skyscrapers and, um, radio communication. Mm -hmm. Um, I think, you know, one of the, the, the big parts of it is also to, again, I use that idea of, you know, being realistic, um, being realistic in terms of, you know, what's possible. So, you know, you have these people saying, you know, oh, let's, let's stop working on AI and killer robots. Well, in ghost fleet, we document 21 different examples of how we're already working on it. Um, and, and when I say document, it's, you know, the example of the Navy lab that's working on the automated battle management system mm -hmm. to uh, the underwater uh, robotic submarine. And we're not just saying, here's a here's an idea. It's like, here's the actual documentation of it. So if you're saying this can't be the future, sorry, they're already working on it. You got to be specific in that way. So you got to have that that sort of um, realism uh, as you're wrestling with these things. Interesting. Yeah, I think I think what we get out of these interviews is we see you can't easily sit there and say, yeah, I believe based on my experience that X, Y, Z is going to happen. Everybody believes it's going to be continuum. There's not going to be a defining event. That's why I kind of asked about the war. Is yeah. There, is there a, is there a wall that we hit, uh, accidentally or otherwise, uh, that changes? Well, you know, things it's a couple of things. You also, um, have to be realistic in the, in the other direction. And there's this pattern, particularly among, people who, you know, either um, try and write the future or create the future. You know, it's particularly a, a Silicon Valley uh, thing. But again, it, there's a history to it of, you know, what my new thing is, it's not just going to change the world. It's going to make the world such a better place. It's mm -hmm. going to save the world. Um, and you know, it, 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 
whatever the the global social problem is someone has an app for it right now Mm -hmm. you know like oh we're going to solve you know world hunger with an app we're going to you know you've got that to you can go back to you know 1838 samuel morse and his brother are writing to each other and they're writing about how the telegraph is um, going to be this this uh, beacon of peace because it's going to link um, millions of people together. Uh, the same the the first messages that were transmitted across the um, transatlantic talked about how you know this was going to create a brotherhood between men. Mm-hmm. And oh, by the way, within a week, those transatlantic cables were being used to communicate military movement orders. <laughs> so, you know, the, the point is that you have to always be, um, you know, it's, again, I go back to, you know, what about human change or what about human nature is and isn't changing? Um, and then you ask that question of, you know, okay, but, but what about the big one? What about the, you know, what, what can be the, the events akin to a World War One, a World War Two, a Cold War, a that um, are going to have that shock effect uh, on the world, and that's that's what we use Ghost Fleet. That's why we we chose the example of you know a World War Three. Um, one, it's you know obviously just a, a compelling um, space to play with, mm-hmm. uh, but also you know the it, when I'm, by compelling I say the stakes are so high mm-hmm. that it allows you to question. Uh, some of the things that you you take for granted right now, or uh, maybe it, it moves you into a world where things that are not possible right now because of um, the politics, because of uh, sense of ethics, they might reconsider in in that kind of war where the stakes really are high, where it involves a wider population. Um, uh, so you know that's that's one reason. The other is the idea of this kind of conflict we've thought is no longer possible. You know, it, it, it was thinkable in the 20th century. And then there was this idea, well, you know, with the end of the Cold War, state on state conflict went away. Mm-hmm. And yet, as you look around the world, guess what? Those those risks, those fears are coming back. Um, NATO and Russia are at their highest point of tension since the mid 1980s. Uh, the U.S. and China are, are engaged in an arms race. So again, I don't think you know this kind of conflict is inevitable. Um, although, as an aside, I would note that the um, Chinese government's uh, official newspaper uh, wrote last year, "quote A U.S.-China war is inevitable." Okay. <laughs> that's not a dis- that's not a happy vision for the future. Um, but the point is, I don't think it's inevitable. I think that was a little bit of kind of you know they were doing some posturing there. Sure. But but it's a risk. This thing that was once thinkable back in the 20th century and then became unthinkable in the 21st century is now becoming thinkable. If we want to circle back to that last question of, you know, dystopia, well, this is the kind of dystopia we want to keep in the realm of fiction. Mm-hmm. All right. Super. All right, then. Well, Peter, two questions for you then to close this off. One, have you ever considered being a professor? <laughs> two, where can we read some of your work? <laughs> so, um, yeah, I mean, you know, I have, I've, I went to grad school and, um, you know, I, I frequently visit and speak at, at universities that, you know, that range from U.S. military ones to lib- small liberal arts colleges. I, I love the act of teaching, but uh, the tenure professor life um, uh, isn't 
it just isn't for me having too much fun in the space that I'm doing right now. Mm-hmm. Um, the funny thing is, is of course it, in the, the worlds that I travel between, um, when I meet with, for example, military folks, I am uh, to them an academic because I do research because I write when I meet with, uh, university folks with professors, I am definitely not an academic. I am policy world because I'm engaging with, uh, these real world, um, institutions, people, whether they're the military or corporations or, you know, pop culture. Um, so I guess you could say I'm either a translator or I'm lost between the two worlds. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, online, where can you find my stuff? Um, all my um, articles and books and bio and all that are available at pwsinger.com. Again, that's pwsinger.com. And then the the latest books, uh, Ghostfleet, is um it's its website is ghostfleetbook.com but you know you can get it on all the various uh either utopian or dystopian online booksellers mm-hmm. <laughs> um and uh, <laughs> the same for the nonfiction ones so uh cyber security and cyber war is available at cybersecuritybook.com or again um if you uh trust um uh online um buying uh before you read the book you can get it there on you know again all the sites that range from Amazon to Barnes and Noble or whatnot. So uh, definitely excited to chat with you guys. It's been real fun um, conversation. Yeah, it's it's nice to go. It's nice to go down a a different route. We've been talking to a lot of artists, uh, but I think your concrete experience is uh, is really helpful. And refreshing. So thanks for listening to Technotopia. I'm John Biggs. And I'm Stefani Tien. And we will talk to you next week. Thanks for listening. Well, thank you so much, Peter.